Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen podcast network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker. He right now is asleep, so I'm doing this solo today. Winter is here, the vaccine is coming, and Joe and Kamala are set to enter the White House in just a few weeks. Things are looking up, America. And we've got a great show for you today. Sarah Casbeer, whose book, A Woman, A Plan, An Outline of a Man, came out in October. She is lovely and brilliant. Our conversation was both smart and funny, but also really important because we talk a lot about trauma and life and discussions about healing along with writing that I think lots of folks need to hear and that I think you will be interested in. Sarah is born and raised in Bloomington, Illinois. Uh, she lives in New York City. Her writing has appeared in creative nonfiction, Descent, L, New York Magazine, and elsewhere. And her work has been nominated for a push cart, which is a big fucking deal, and received notable mention in the Best American Essays, which is also a big fucking deal. We'll get to all that in just a few minutes. First, we have a little business to cover. As you know, we do two shows a week right now, every Monday and Thursday. And there's two things you can do to help us grow this little program of ours. First, leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. Click on that little five star and tell us what you think. And also, tell your friends about us. That's the best way for us to get the word out. We host a monthly happy hour, which you can find out at thewritersjam.com, which is our lovely little website. We are tinkering with that right now, and we have some partnerships coming up, so keep checking back at the website to find out information about that. While you're there, you can do a couple other things. First, if you want to buy a book of anybody that's been on the show, click on the little bookshop link there. That'll take you to a website that we have curated, and you will support local and independent bookstores across the country, and we get a little money back when you go through our link. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter where you get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and happenings around the web. Lastly, you can support the entire Solid Listen Network by clicking on that Patreon button. For just a couple bucks a month, you'll get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. So this is a really interesting interview today for a lot of reasons. One, I'm always interested when I come across somebody who I connect with and I've had this discussion on these intros before, but Sarah and I just talked like we were old friends. Like, we've known each other since birth. Several times through the episode, you will hear us talk about, like, oh, I, I, like, I see you. Like, I feel like I understand what you're saying. And obviously, there is a superficiality to that because it's easy to connect with people uh, in casual conversation when you have lots of things in common. What is interesting is that her book is about both this trauma that she experienced, but the aftermath of that trauma. And I'm talking about the 20-year aftermath of that trauma, how it has continued to impact her life and the ways in which 
she acted out or ignored or ran away from this pain, which is the thing I understand completely, right? Like, I've talked openly about not doing trauma therapy until just a few years ago and it being transformative in my life and how I understood what was happening in my body. And since this interview, we did this interview a few months back, Sarah and I have done a couple things together, like we did a little happy hour and we've chatted uh, with some other folks about trauma and life and writing and all of that stuff. So re-listening to this episode, which was the beginning of that friendship, was really interesting to me because I don't think that we have enough conversation about the aftermath of trauma, about the 20 years that you navigate through trauma as you're trying to live your life, but also spilling out on top of other people. And in her case, if you read her book, and I'm not going to spoil the book, she talks very openly about the ways in which that impacted her relationships, and particularly her sexual relationships, which, if you know anything about assault, rape, things of that nature, of course that's going to impact somebody's life. And it's also going to impact their partners and the people that are coming into contact with them. But we don't have that discussion a lot, or at least if that discussion is happening, it's not happening in public as much as things like consent and affirmative consent and why those things are important. And I understand why that part of the discussion is where we're talking now, because that is obviously very important in the, in, in the world. And we address that in the program. But what I have told everybody since I've done this interview is that her book is so important because it begins to break down what you actually go through when trauma happens. And not in the moment, but in all the things that happen after. All the things that we don't talk about. All of the things that affect us on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, as I have said many times, my trauma is completely different than Sarah's. But there is a Venn diagram of empathy and understanding that you can begin to get, having gone through this, whatever I went through and reading about what she went through and talking with her as well. I just think this is such a powerfully important discussion, and not just because I had it. I'm not that self-centered a little bit, hopefully not completely, but just because I think as writers, it's so important for us to be able to unpack things that actually happen and to be able to put those into words and give names to people and help frame the way to think about things. And that's why this conversation to me is both so fun and so important because we do everything from talking about sports, which she was uh, involved in uh, like me when she was younger and she was very good, uh, all the way into this sort of weird writing thing that we do with this trauma stuff sandwiched in between. And I've said this on the show repeatedly as well. Our traumas and the stories that writers write about are not the entirety of who we are, right? Like, as Whitman said, we are large and contain multitudes. And so that's a sliver of the story. And that's the other reason that I really enjoyed this conversation and that I really enjoy Sarah so, so much. <laughs> because there is enough of this connection, like our lives follow these similar trajectories and they've had similar things happen enough that there is an understanding when the other person is talking that... I feel it and that she feels it, right? And that you don't have to then stop and go, well, let me explain what this thing means. Because having experienced my version of whatever, I can draw upon that and go, yeah, yeah, okay. I understand how both that is similar and different, but enough of similar that I see what you're saying. 
and we don't do enough of that, right? Like, we don't do enough of that in the world. We don't do enough of that, and I think that we need to. And so I have carried this conversation that I had with Sarah since then. I have, you know, weirdly felt a, a friendship and a kinship with her. And, in fact, uh, she and uh, Nina, who wrote... Uh, Good Morning Destroyer of Men's Souls, we, we, the three of us did an event together, have kind of laughed because we don't know each other, but we all three sort of have this affinity for each other where it's like, I feel like we are friends, even though we're not friends, but we're also friends, which happens when you get into these intimate interview settings and, and there are traumas and things that you talk about. And what a gift to the world, right? And I told Sarah, and I'll just end this little rant with this, her book is a gift because she unpacks some really difficult things and some really personal details about her life, which are necessary for us to understand the aftermath of trauma. And it's the same thing that I've said about uh, Melissa Palavino's book, Tomboyland. She unpacked things about her life as well that allowed us to see into her world and to see ourselves in her world. These are gifts that if you're a reader if you are somebody that loves words and literature, you should be falling all over yourself to get to these books and read them because just what a gift they give us. And I'd like to think that our conversation is a little bit of a gift as well because she's so brilliant and so funny and is able to talk about this stuff and give words and statements and meaning and context to really difficult things. So I'm glad you are here today. I'm glad you are listening. I hope you didn't skip this intro, like I know some of you skipped those intros. But whether you did or not, if you're here now, without further ado, here is my interview with Sarah Casimir. I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, what's that smile? Is that a really doing well, or is that a... Yeah, I'm feeling good. That's it's a good. beautiful day. I My book's coming out soon. I just had my launch last week, so I'm excited. That is exciting. It's, that um... new book, Glow. <laughs> and this is like the perfect... Like I don't know what it's like. You're down in New York, right? Yes. Um, it's like 58 degrees here today, like mm. sunny, mountain. Like It could not be any better right this minute. Yeah, weather's also beautiful here. Yeah. Are you able to are you guys able to get out? Like I know yeah. it's sort of been Yeah, I think the city's come back to life. So I, people need to be careful, but yeah, I'm out all the I mean I go out for walks. We've eaten dinner outside a few times. I'm more on the careful side, but still. Yeah. There's a there's a bar here in town that I go to uh that's like European, so it has like all the open air stuff. Yeah. And, you know, inside, they there's only five tables inside, but they also have a rooftop, and that's where I used to write. I'd go there during the day, wow. you know, and have a beer. And so, like, I've done that this week. It's the first time I've been in a building since February, wow. end of March. And, like, just I told my friends, just going there and sitting there, I was reading um, Yah Jossi's new book, uh, mm. Transcend, uh, Transcendent Kingdom and writing. Mm. And I was like, this is the first time I felt like a normal human being. This <sighs> yeah. I'm looking forward to that myself. <laughs> <laughs> was the event, did you get to do anything in person? 
No, I did a Zoom event, but I really, really liked it. I yeah. think it, the, the format worked and I got a lot of good questions. I'm actually a little, I have a bit of stage fright. So doing the reading in front of Zoom was like, oh, I'm just practicing at my house. So <laughs> It's going to be interesting when all the writers who are like, oh, I want to be back in the bookshops because not many writers I know are like me, which is like, I'm super, I'm very comfortable being in front of a lot of people. And I feel like they're going to go back and go, oh no, it was, it was better when I was in my pajamas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Or no pants or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whatever the version of that with some glass of wine, very nearby. I promise I'm wearing pants. As, as long as you don't stand up or go to the bathroom during this, I feel like we'll be okay. Where I work, there's actually, um, I will not say the person's name, but, uh, this professor falls asleep during zoom meetings on a regular basis. And there oh, are screenshots no. of people just sending it around like, well, he called this meeting and then he fell asleep. Oh my gosh. <laughs> too funny. Yeah. Uh, well, good. I'm glad things are sort of coming back down there. I'm actually going to be coming down to New York in like a month. Um, I think I'm going to start splitting time between here and there. And hmm. I was really nervous about, I don't need the New York experience until we get the virus under control. Like I'm not, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to go bar hop and stuff. But I was like, I don't even know if it, I don't want people to get upset with me that I've come from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I don't think anyone can, I don't think anyone's going to get upset. Good. Good. Well, I will now say that I've been given permission by you. If that happens, you are, <laughs> you're my guest. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'll use your husband's name. That way you won't even get. In yeah. Trouble. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, so you're down in Brooklyn, um, Brooklyn. Yep. Brooklyn I, Heights. Yeah, I just assume every writer in New York lives in Brooklyn now. I don't know how we all ended up here, but here we are. It's amazing to me. I The joke I've told folks is you all left me off the email list because I now know about 40 of you down there. You uh, along with the you know 15 or so that I already knew from just life. Well, you'll have, when we can get together again, you'll have a lot of people to see when you visit. Yeah, it's funny. I've already, I've talked to several of like my in real life friends and I've told like, cause somehow these writers don't know each other and I don't know how that's possible because we yeah. all sort of run around in the same circles. So I told Evan Ratliff, who's down there, um, who I worked with at Wired, you know, 20 years ago, I'm like, well, we're going to have a salon at your house and you're about to meet every writer in Brooklyn. That sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah. I a lot of us are weird loners, so maybe that's part of it. Well, and, like, at this point, lots of them have kids, so it's like, Evan's got kids. It's like, well, it'll be kid-friendly. Like, bring your, like, this is not going to be a, we'll do it in the day, you know? Like, yeah. We'll stop short of a bounce house, but we'll, yeah. you know, <laughs> wrangle the children so that they can do their children stuff. There can be the, an after party. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't involve animal crackers and <laughs> and tater tots. <laughs> uh, so, are you? You're not from Brooklyn, are you? Are you from New York? No, I'm from Bloomington, Illinois, which is like directly between Chicago and St. Louis. If you just plop your finger on the map, that's where I'm from. And did you have brothers and sisters? I have one older sister who is three years older than me. So, how was that growing up? Um, she was awesome. Honestly, she was my best audience. I was like a little ham always since I was a little kid, um, telling stories, making jokes, doing impressions. And she would just laugh and laugh and encouraged me, um, to be the, be the sort of funny sibling who's, you know, making jokes and trying to make everyone laugh. So it you actually, 
worked out really well. You were the, you were literally the young, I mean, that you fell into that stereotype of the younger sibling. Totally. Yeah. It was so, I'm sure I was annoying. Sometimes she has, she has two little girls now and sometimes she calls them Sarah because they're, they're, they're bugging her and it's, it just goes back to um, her memory of me. (laughs) With love. That's with love. With love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my sisters were the same way. My sister, older sister, was five years older than me, but she was like a rule follower, and like she did what she was supposed to do, and then I rolled oh, yeah. in and did not. Same exact experience. My sister was very; she was the the golden child, and I was yeah. a bit of a hot mess when I got older. But we <laughs> yeah. can get to that. My parents always said, like, the reason they had two was they thought they were really good parents. And then I showed up and were like, oh, we don't have anything to do with how these children show up. None of that was us. (laughs) So uh, what did your parents do? So my parents both work in the medical field. My dad is an ophthalmologist and my mom was a physical therapist. They're both retired now. What is is an ophthalmologist? Um, eye doctor. Oh, oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I forget that I, I grew up with this family that spoke in Latin at dinner talking about various strange um, ailments. And I forget that other people don't use the same terms, but um, yeah, they met in medical school at, at the university of Illinois. And actually I just, I spent a month with them. They would since retired and moved to California and I spent August quarantining with them, which was quite an experience to be with your retired parents for a month. But um, my mom told me this kind of batshit story <laughs> about how when they were first married, my, my dad was a resident, an ophthalmology resident doing, you know, as an eye doctor, and he would get calls from the morgue to come remove the organs from the organ donor, like oh. the eyes. And my mom would go with him. And I'm like, mom, why would you do that? And she said, well, I just thought it would be interesting. And, and um, it's so funny because this particular, like this profession is so alien to everyone else who obviously that sounds like a horrible thing to have to do on a Friday night. Why would you willingly go um, as a date? But um, it just, it kind of speaks to how, how our family, you know, grew up with these two very, like, always worried, very, like, clinical thinking parents. And then I was sort of like a creative kid. And they, I think they kind of didn't really understand me. Yeah, this is not an uncommon theme on the show. Yeah. That uh and uh but I want to get by now I want to interview your parents. <laughs> I do too. Every time I hear them talk, I'm like, I don't know. They, they, um, they, they, they still surprise me even though they're 70 and I I thought I've heard it all. But how wonderful is that? Yeah. I mean, one that they found a partner that was like, yeah, taking the eyeballs out. Like, let's roll. Let's go. I want to get a good look at this. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's the thing that everybody, you know, like when you're in, when you're trying to find a partner, you're like, I just want somebody that will like do stuff with me. (laughs) We don't specify the stuff. No, the stuff can be whatever you want it to be. <laughs> oh my God, that is batshit crazy. It's also yeah. weird that you don't hear that until now. I know. I was like, really? You saved this? Right. But yeah, that- I guess you're, you sit, you're stuck at home with someone for a month and you, you learn things. That feels like the first story you tell at a cocktail party. I, w- I would think so. Yeah. 
I interviewed an author, Stephanie Scott, uh, British, and she grew up, uh, she's um, uh, uh, Indian, uh, part Indian, and she Mm -hmm. grew up uh, overseas in Asia, and her, her mom worked at a zoo, and every morning, she ate breakfast with orangutan, not like yeah. on the other side of the cage, in the cage with the orangutan. Whoa. She, yeah. She's like, I've never told that story to anybody. And I was like, Stephanie, one, that's an essay that this needs to be golden. written. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, you roll into any party and you win the party. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like the eyeball story wins the party. The eyeball story should end up somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know what your next book should be. Yeah. Things, things my parents have said. I feel like that is... Why uh, I'm in therapy. <laughs> things my parents yeah. have said. And so uh, you're growing up. Uh, what's the town like? I'm assuming it's a small place. Um, yeah. You know, it's not super small. I think it's like 200,000. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. It, but So it has like the feel of a suburb, but it's not near a city. <laughs> I always found kind of strange. Like I felt like I grew up in this weird little bubble in the middle of Illinois. And it, I mean, it was a nice place to grow up. You know, we had a house with a yard and play sports and could walk to school and all of that, that stuff. So I feel like Illinois has several of those. I feel like I have some friends that live in that like suburb, not by a city thing. Exactly. There's several cities in the surrounding area that are. Yeah. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so and what were you, so you were a creative kid, but like what were you what what else did you do? Or were because you clearly did not keep to yourself. Um I I played a lot of sports. I played soccer. I was a was a springboard diver, which is kind of a strange um, sport to pick up, but I loved gymnastics. And then when I went to the pool, I found that I could do gymnastics off of the diving board. Yeah. And, uh, low or high? Um, well, eventually both. I, I dove through high schools and you have to move up if you, if you want to be competitive. And it was... Why is it, that? Well, so the way that diving works is that you get a score based on the degree of difficulty of your dive and how well you perform it. Mm -hmm. So if you're only diving off the low, the one meter springboard, which is like the regular diving board, then you can't raise your score up high enough to win anything. Gotcha. So it's not, you don't have to do them. That's just how you get the points to win. Exactly. And so I actually dove until I was, I think 16 or 17. And I just, I stopped because I, I was afraid of heights yeah, that's exactly why one quits that sport. <laughs> and and I was also a teenager and, you know, other stuff was getting in the way of of excelling in, in a sport that requires, like, complete 
mastery over your body and yeah just it was kind of too much for me at that point but yeah I don't know why you seem like a soccer player you seem like that would be the sport that you like the most I don't know why I've just met you I don't know why I feel that way I you know I meet I meet people who say they play soccer and I'm like yes you would (laughs) yes I loved soccer it was so fun and you seem like you'd be a halfback midfielder dang right midfield how did you get it you know it's weird I was a baseball player and like I played for an elite team um until I got hurt uh and so I always tell folks like I've been around sports and I've been around professionals that have done that since the time I was young and you just kind of get used to seeing like Oh, that look looks like a thing, right? Like totally. and midfielders tend to be shorter. They can run like crazy. Like they have good mastery over their body because they have to be able to use their left and right. Like the cross kick. Yeah. You're switching. Yeah. Like you, like that's just, it, it is a, it is a, it's a really difficult position to play. Um, and you know, you just seem like, again, we've just met, but you seem like <laughs> you have the sort of body and mentality of a midfielder. <laughs> I've, I've guessed de- defenders as well. I'm always yeah. like, Do you play defense. Yeah, it's strange when I meet people who played baseball. I'm like, oh, you were a left fielder. And they're like, how do you know that? I'm like, I don't know. It's a skill that I sh- I should have cultivated. I had a chance to, you know, work in major league and I didn't. So now I'm just a weird guy wandering around a baseball stadium like, that guy's a shortstop. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good conversation starter. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I spend a lot of time in the before times. Just wa- I traveled to baseball stadiums all over the East Coast last year, and I'll just walk around and talk to people. Um, and I realize I've now aged into that being appropriate. Mm. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, guy with a baseball hat and a jersey. Like, yeah. we're talking baseball with this guy. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So you were doing sports. You were um, – were you – did you do, like, creative stuff? Did you do theater, drama, or, like – like visual arts like I really liked to draw I took art classes and um I once I I wrote a poem once it was in the newspaper this is like every writer's story wait you wrote a poem and it was in the newspaper I wrote a poem about (laughs) about earth day like the earth dying it was a very like macabre yes melodramatic yeah so you're like 16 17 when you wrote this no I was like eight Oh shit, you were emo from the beginning. I was emo at eight, apparently. <laughs> and you know what? My my mom kind of she didn't make fun of it, but she she kind of called out how, you know, this is geez, this is a little it was like I seem to be swimming, but really I'm drowning. It was like the earth yeah. as a metaphor. And um, I never wrote another poem. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, like if your mom is saying like this is dark and stormy, kid. <laughs> you need to smile more from an early age. Yeah, but I mean, I think the writing thing was there. I just, I didn't write. I was definitely creative and I loved, I kind of liked performing and um, and when, and drawing, but. When did the stage fright hit? I don't, I think um, maybe when I was a teenager or an adult. You just got old and then started thinking too much about it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, the social forces of being exactly. told how a woman is supposed to act. And over overthinking. And I think I also developed an anxiety disorder when I was a teenager. And so... I feel like that's the most normal response to getting older. Yeah. Like, you know, I started therapy, like... I mean, I've been in therapy on and off, but like trauma therapy, like three years ago. I'm like, all of a sudden you reach a certain age and it's just like, well, I can't put that anywhere else. Exactly. Like, this needs to be fixed. <laughs> It's, it's coming out in ways 
yeah. in ways that you can see or can't see, but yeah, it, it can't just sit there. I agree. Yeah. It's, I've told folks like it was, it was harmful, you know, in lots of ways, you know, my shit was spilling out on other people mm-hmm. and that's not fair. Like I want kindness and happiness to spill out on other people, not, you know, yeah. crazy, crazy pants King. Yeah. Uh, so you're doing visual stuff. You're playing sports. Um, not really thinking about being a writer, not really thinking that's a thing you're going to do, huh? Nope. So as you get into high school and as you're thinking about what comes next, what are you thinking? No more diving, no more writing. So the thing is, I'm not really thinking. Um, I wanted to have fun. I definitely was a pothead. I think that was like the anxious thing that was happening. It was, I was a curious, you know, the, the curious mind of a child is suddenly an adolescent. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, I need to deaden this thought factory that's now keeping me up at night and making me feel so uncomfortable about who I am. So I definitely liked to party in high school. It's, you know, it's interesting uh, because I've struggled with that stuff most of my life. And again, until I went to trauma therapy and, you know, I mean, I was in and out of AA for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, and my therapist almost immediately was like, you don't have a drinking problem. Like that, your problem is not that Whoa. she's like, cause you haven't, you know, you've not drank for a long time and how do you feel? And I'm like, well, not great. She's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your problem is under yeah. that. And I think that that's what I, I don't think that we talk about that with, I mean, I think that a lot of that experimentation, you know, some of it's just having a good time because you feel good and it's like, Oh, yeah. I, you know, want to hook up and party. But some of it too, is that like, Holy shit. What's happening. Yes, exactly. And, and also I didn't feel, I didn't feel like my parents really understood me. You know, they were still looking at eyeballs and. (laughs) But they were supportive. Yeah. They were, yes, they were very loving and supportive. Which almost makes it worse. I mean, it does, right? Like, because it's like, well, they support me, but they're doing it just cause. It it, it becomes smothering when you're that age. And also I, I think they didn't really understand how to support me. I didn't understand how to support me. Right. I, mean, I think a lot of people go through that at that age. Where but that, I think when parents don't understand it, it hits double because you don't feel like they actually are supporting you. They are supporting the child they had. And you're like, you're not really seeing, I need help. Exactly. They were. I felt like they were supporting the child they wanted. Yeah. And I think that was what was hard for me. Yeah. And I think particularly, you know, if you're creative and if you're not indulging in that creativity, because so much of figuring out all that stuff inside you is putting that stuff out. And sort of, that's sort of what creativity I think is, is figuring yeah. out your voice and you. Yep. Um, so you're not thinking you're kind of part of, did you go to college? Um, I did. <laughs> feels like, <laughs> it feels like I was at the university. <laughs> <laughs> I did. No. So what happened was I had, which I wrote about in my book is I had a violent boyfriend in my first boyfriend in high school was, um, was, was very violent and he assaulted me. It be, I had to go to court. The whole thing was very traumatic for me. Yeah. Um, How old were you? I was seven. I was 16, 17, when we were dating. So this is like around the time you're quitting stuff. Exactly. So yeah. I'm smoking a lot of pot. I'm hanging out with him and his mom who also smoked a lot of pot. Sure. <laughs> and 
Um, I really felt like, I guess it was like, I met this, this first person who understood or like really seemed to like get me and be sweet to me and, and like me this uncomfortable version of myself that I didn't like. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't know then that actually people who abusive people, they know what they're doing, you know? And so I felt very loved and very understood but really this person was an abuser. So that, that was a major inflection point in my life. Um, I often think like my, how different my life might've been had that not happened, had I not gotten involved with him. Um, I mean, I don't regret it. I also think that as writers, we're attracted to, you know, wild, dangerous, adventures. And that's kind of how my relationship felt with him at the time. But to get back to your question. Well, no, I want to stay here for a little (laughs) while because this is, because it's important, right? Like it's, this is a sort of foundational shaping moment. Like, so what happens with your parents? Like, are they, do they know? Like, because I've known folks that have gone through this and like people know, but adults don't always say shit. Exactly. So they forbid me from seeing him at the beginning. And I was like, no, not happening. So it was sort of like we had, and what is the expression? An unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Like They said no. And I said no. And so we just sort of split ways. We didn't talk. I went where I wanted. They did, they couldn't find me. So they eventually they stopped trying and it was just sort of like they had to let me go. And then after that happened, he actually also punched through my windshield, which was my parents' car. So I had to bring the car home and I had to be like, mom, dad, I have to tell you something. And so my parents knew something had happened, but I don't think I gave them the full details. You 100% did not. Yeah. You were still protecting him. Totally. Yeah. So they kind of knew about it and they knew I was struggling, but we never talked about it. Like we never talked about like, Hey, you know, this was an abusive, abusive relationship. It's not your fault. Um, you know, that kind of stuff I just didn't really get. And I feel like I, I, I learned early to store these bad feelings in a compartment, you know, like I'll just put those feelings (laughs) there. And pretend everything is fine. Yeah. Well, this is the pushing down stuff. I mean, I think that that is the default and I can't speak for everybody, but like I grew up in the, in a small Appalachian town, like people didn't talk about stuff. No. And if you brought it up, it was like, well, you're going to upset your mom. It's like, oh, exactly. uh, uh, how about me? Yeah. I'm a little upset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know it's exactly. not exactly the same, but it's the, it's the same mentality. Exactly. We didn't talk about emotion or feelings really in my family, although if you, my dad would have watched a video of my colonoscopy, you know I mean? It was like, we had this weird (laughs) intimacy that (laughs) wasn't around feelings, but so anyway, I was, we were kind of separate, but yeah, I do think that, um, it makes me think there's this amazing quote by Lisa Gabbard from her book. I think it's the self unstable about how the only logical response to vulnerability is either love or violence. And I, and it, and I think that you, if something happens to you like that, that's traumatic, what you need to heal 
is you need to be able to be vulnerable and in return, you need to receive love. I mean, my therapist says a similar thing, which is, you know, when you're opening up and doing that stuff, you have to have positive experiences. And and because you don't naturally think that a positive thing will happen with being open. Exactly. Exactly. So I was not open with my parents in a way that would allow them to love me in, in a way that would help me heal. So that became like a festering wound. It's so, in, I mean, so we're going to just clinically talk about this because obviously that is a fucking monstrous, disastrous thing to have to go to. But as a writer, I've, my therapist has told me if it wasn't for writing, I would have probably killed myself. And I'm like, I 100%, I 100% would have done that. A lot of my career was being very open about the struggles and things that I went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I started healing it, I'm like, well, I don't want to be open about that anymore because I, I need to do the internal work. She was like, mm-hmm. yeah, you were just getting that stuff out. You weren't doing work. You were just, because if it stayed inside, it was not going to go well for you. Yes. And th- so much of that writing was me trying to make sense of it. Like, did you, like, as that was happening, like, did you find creative outlets and endeavors where you were trying, or did you just like push that shit down and like, I Sally Force. So I pushed that shit down <laughs> for years yeah. and I just, I became very good at compartmentalizing um, my pain. You didn't realize you'd done it, right? You didn't realize that you had not dealt with it. Um, I had a lot of nightmares. I knew I had PTSD, I think, but I was just like, you know what? I don't know what to do about this. I, I got quote unquote justice in the sense that he was sentenced. Right. Like what what do I do with this weird thing that happened? That's kind of how I experienced it. And eventually later in my thirties, when I wrote this book, I did do that work of, of figuring, of figuring out what happened and. Right. But that's years later. I mean, that's, you carry that around. Did did you, I guess what I, for me, I didn't realize I hadn't done work. I thought that the writing and stuff was actually doing work and it wasn't until I actually started doing EMDR and trauma therapy that I was like, Holy shit. Yeah, no, none of that stuff was work. (laughs) Like none of the writing stuff was work. Like I actually have to go reprocess this and I have to actually face these things. I I actually think I was in denial. Yeah. So I would say that I wasn't even aware that this was a thing I needed to process and deal with. Yeah. So that happened. Does it happen like is that is that a short time frame? Like does that happen like over a year or something? Yeah, the whole the whole affair lasted, you know, there are months before he was sentenced, where he stalked me. So the whole thing was kind of a long, prolonged thing that was my senior year in high school. Jesus Christ. And eventually he went away and I, I went to college, but I was, I was pretty um, emotionally deadened at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what did you go to study ostensibly? <laughs> so I went to business school. Really? The reason that I did that is because I was so despondent that my dad filled out my, my college applications for me. So nothing that had an essay because he was filling them out, um, being the the very good loving dad that he was, he helped me out. And I went to the university of Illinois and the best school there was the business school. It was hard to get into. And my parents just thought she's good at science and math, which I was. And that's what I, so that's just what I did. That's crazy. It's funny. My dad filled out my stuff too, for totally different reasons. <laughs> I was like, I was just going to stay at home and like get my girlfriend pregnant. And, and I'm from a small 5,000 people in the town. Like once the baseball so, see, career was over, it was like, 
same story. I was like, I just want to stick around, hang out for a while, you know, thank God for my parents. Yeah. I will, you know, I have, I have said repeatedly, like uh, my high school girlfriend is very happy that my parents did that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you go um, and you just kind of like, you're not, you're just sort of going through school. You're not really, are you engaged in stuff there? Like, are you, yeah, no, I, so I sort of flipped my script and I became very studious. I went to the library. I did all my hard math classes. I, um, I worked really hard. I worked as a bartender at night, so I didn't really do that much partying. I wasn't like in the Greek system or anything, yeah. which was a big thing at, at my university. I went to Miami university in Ohio where they birthed like 14. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did not fit in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. See, I kind of felt like I didn't fit in either. So it was like study, work, study, work. I made some really good friends. I had a really good experience. And And you got a business degree. I strangely have a business. And whenever I tell people that, they're like, really? Yeah, the soccer thing I got, the business, I would not have gone down the business road. But I actually think, and this is, I have a friend who's an engineer who says the same thing, that like writing... And editing sometimes uses that math brain of, mm-hmm. like, moving things around. I don't know, of, like, logic. Yeah. And then the art thing, you know, you can't really control or I can't control anyway. So Yeah. Well, and I think everything feeds into your writing, right? Like, I, yeah. I'm, I've talked to so many people that have, like, philosophy degrees. And I'm like, well, yeah, all that makes sense. It's yeah. Writing is thinking. Writing is trying to understand ideas. Writing is trying to take abstract and make it concrete. Yep. And so anything that you study that moves abstract to concrete is helping you in the process. And like, I ended up running a division at a magazine. Like I've learned business and I've told other, like other writers come to me now. They're like, how do you do a marketing plan? And I'm like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, I'm that writer that they come to for that. Like nobody's coming to me for editing help. They're like, how do you do the business of this? Yeah. Which is important because most writers undervalue their stuff and don't really have any idea like how to how important that stuff is. Mm-hmm. Has it helped you in your like with your writing? Um, no, no I don't think so. I think it was just a thing that I studied and it helped me get a job when I later. But well, so when you graduated, what did you do? So I moved to Chicago. And I didn't know what I wanted to do because I was a creative person who had gotten this business degree. So <laughs> what was I supposed to do with that? That's a, that is a crisis of faith it, it, right there. It was, a, it was a crisis. Yeah. I, um, I bartended in Chicago. I, Where worked, at? I worked retail and I did a, um, I was an intern at the museum of contemporary art there, um, which is something that I really liked. I worked in their marketing department and I kind of, yeah. So I was kind of trying to figure out, okay, what is the job that I can do that is half, that is, takes, you know, my, my left brain and my right brain. And I was, I was still trying to figure that out. Um, and then I kind of got derailed again. Well, you're going to have to tell me how, what was that about? Like with more, with more personal stuff or like, Yeah, more personal stuff. So in my early 20s, around that time, I was raped by an acquaintance. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) So yeah, the book is about my formative experiences. And and in particular, the traumatic ones, but you know, how, how we, how we form our identities based on our experiences and relationships. Um, So I felt like that this was something that happened like it would have been called a date rape back then. It wasn't something you would report 
for me, I was just like, that was fucked up. And I just put it into the same container that I had carried the other stuff. I just thought, you know what? I can't deal with this. I knew it happened, but I couldn't name it. Sure. Because as soon as you name it, it becomes real. If I had used the word rape, it would have, I would have had to deal with all the feelings and I just wasn't ready for that. Then I didn't have the support. I didn't, I just, it wasn't going to happen for me. Yeah. For a long time, actually. Well, and for that, like, like you said, like that just was not, the, the term was used, I don't know how old you are, I'm 48, but like, you know, so growing up in like the 80s and 90s, it was like, this is going to sound callous, but if you didn't grow up in that time, it was like rape light. It was like, it, it, I know, it, I know. right? Like it was like, that was how that term was used as like almost totally. as if it wasn't a bad thing. Date rape doesn't ruin your life like date murder, which of right. course ruins your life. <laughs> right, right. It's yeah. It's like date rape was sort of like, oh, this is a misunderstanding. Like exactly. that was sort of the way that issue was framed. And I, I honestly think to the detriment of, all men and women involved because a lot of people who this happened to or who perpetrated it may not have even known what they were doing was not okay. You know, now that we have a lot of conversations about active consent and just what, what is the right thing to do? I think the times have changed and that's a good thing, but yeah, exactly. Then I was even confused about it. Yeah. And like in a trauma is not a time that you should have to try to figure out that confusion, right? Like that's, that is not the time, not that you shouldn't have said something, but like if it's not clarified and then somebody's in trauma, there's no way they're going to be able to navigate that. None. Zero. Yeah. Put it away. Yeah. It's interesting. I was a um, woman studies minor at my college because uh, the woman I was dating at the time uh, was big into it. And I was like, well, I should go learn this stuff so that I can talk about it. And I remember, you know, sort of sitting in the back, I just kind of listened. I didn't really feel like I should be participating too much. Um, and I remember all of these conversations and I've told folks, like, I like to think of myself as skewing onto the left side of the world. Um, but even in the last five and 10 years, I'm like, Oh shit. Like, I, you know, like I think that I understand this stuff. And then I hear things and I'm like, active like when active consent started being a thing mm-hmm. i was like what the shit is that and i'm like oh well i mean yeah but like why is it why is it the, this millennium that we're talking about that like that feels so weird and one of those things where you're like this is structural pa- patriarchy like that's oh, what that is <laughs> yeah definitely it's and all think of all the movies you saw where where a woman is saying no or body language no i don't want to and oh, it's every movie it was every movie pushing, pushing and then it and then it's sex when it's, it's coercion. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a fine line at a certain point, but also I think we need to make that line very clear. Yeah. And it's less of a fine line if you have active consent. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like it's that, you know, and that was why it was so amazing to me. And as again, like, um, it, like having been around this and, and, and thinking like, Oh yeah, I have a pretty good sense of this stuff and hearing these things and going, fuck, like, like explaining patriarchy to my friends. I'm like, all I can tell you is like the, the, the ability of a woman to be able to say, yes, I would like to do this. is not a thing you were taught. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and so we got to do better. Cause it's not your, that's not your problem. I mean, it's your problem because it ends up your problem, but like yeah. it's our problem because we're the ones that should be doing that. <laughs> yes. I always, most, most women's issues are also, if not actually yeah. men's issues. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just like I always say, racism isn't a black person problem. Yeah. Like, they, they didn't make this like, you know, and so it doesn't matter that I didn't like that, 
you know, I didn't begin slavery. Like I have been benefiting from that. And so yeah. just the act of being alive in this means that I have to actively work against that or and acknowledge it. And it is, um, the framing of these issues is always so interesting to like women's issues or whatever. I'm like, ah, like you said, like I, most of these things are not women's issues. They are women. They become women's responsibilities, but they are men's exactly. issues. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so that, so you're in the city by yourself. I mean, like, you know, you don't have, like your family's not there. So you're sort of dealing and sort of trying to make your way through. And this happens, like, what comes next? Like, that's a lot of shit coming at you as a young person. Yeah. So I, I actually lived with my best friend from high school then. So I wasn't totally alone, but I didn't tell her about it. Um, of course you didn't. I, so what I did was I had an ingenious plan. <laughs> and what I would do was I would run away to New York and I would work in the fashion industry because A, there's no men in fashion. B, it felt like a cross between creative and business. So I could probably find a job in marketing or something. And C, it felt so far away from all of these things that had happened from, from Bloomington, Illinois. It was the opposite yeah. of of getting my windshield smashed by a, a guy in Bloomington, Illinois would be to move to New York and have some imaginary glamorous lifestyle. <laughs> and how did that, how did that work? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it didn't quite stick, but, um, I, uh, I mean, I worked for a couple of fashion designers and in d design advertising design studios. Those were my early jobs here. Um, I worked as a project manager. I now work as a copywriter and I, I like my job now, which is not really like I don't work in high fashion, but yeah. it, it was sort of this idea that I felt like I had created for myself, which only in retrospect do I see. Actually, I was just, I was fucking running away. Yeah. I was running it away and trying to change the ugly parts of myself or that I saw as ugly with a facade of beauty that that wasn't real and it just made me feel still ugly I mean ugly is not the right word I don't mean physically I yeah. just mean inner inside yeah no it's you yeah it, you're I've always told folks like it for me it was a disgust like when I went in yeah. to my therapist I told my she's like what you know as we were going through stuff I'm like wow I'm a fucking piece of shit and she's yeah. like, well, that's, that's a terrible way to live. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So if we could fix that, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's that just like, like we were saying earlier, like when things fill out of me now, I want it to be kindness and love, right? That's the part that I felt inside me, but that was buried under all of this other stuff. Under the shame. Yeah. That would prevent the vulnerability that would allow that niceness to come out, right? Like, exactly. so it's that, like, that, that's the ugly, right? Like that's the, uh, whatever your version of the piece of shit is. Yep, exactly. It's, I recognize that like I recognize soccer players. Aww. I mean, but when you go through trauma, like obviously my trauma is different, but like there are Venn diagrams that you can sort of, that's what empathy is, right? Like, yeah. oh, this is, this is that. Exactly. I think that also, I think that when you go through trauma and recover from it, yet you're able, you have more empathy for other people who have, you, you just sort of understand that experience that the post-traumatic growth thing is real. Like yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of a superpower. I've, yeah. I talked to friends from graduate school who knew me as like this angry poor kid that like wouldn't take shit from anybody. And they're like, you're so happy now. I'm like, 
I was always happy. It was just never out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's the only way that I really know, right? You see that reflection from people that have seen you through that journey. That's true. Yes. I, a lot of people say I have be- sort of become a different person. Yeah. And it's like, you have to hear that enough. I don't know how you experience it, but I tell people like, I feel it, but I feel it mostly because I hear it enough and I just believe you guys. Mm. You know, yeah. like, I don't know if it's ever going to fit on like a nice pair of jeans, but like, yeah, it, more it, like it, a pair of sweatpants. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like fleecy. Yeah. Soft. Yeah. So, uh, and the running thing I think is, you know, I moved every three years. Like, that's what I did. Like yeah. it's, I just hit three years in Pittsburgh and I was like, Oh, I'm going to split time between here and New York. My therapist was like, let's think about your pattern. And I'm like, Oh, three years. Right. So let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's smart. So um, you get to New York, you do the thing like, and it doesn't fix anything. So of course it doesn't fix anything. <laughs> I'm still screwed up. Um, <laughs> are you like, are you like in your late twenties at this point, early thirties? Yeah. 20, basically my twenties in mid twenties in New York. And then, so I sort of worked my way up to working for a corporation as a copywriter. And for the first time I had insurance that covered therapy, ding, 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 second inflection point in life. <laughs> what, um, kind of th- what kind of therapy do you do? Um, I, well, I went to, it's called AEDP, I think okay. it is like, it's like an, you form a relationship with the therapist. Yeah. But, um, oh, that makes sense. That's interesting. So I was third 30, I think when I started therapy and, and 30 is one of those years. Yeah. It's one of those years where it's like, you're far enough away from college that you're like, I gotta be an adult. There's something that clicks in 30. Yep. 30 is a good time. At least it was, I mean, it was a rough time to revisit all this stuff, but it was also good. But I also think that in culture at that time, there was a lot of campus activism around um, rape on campus. Oh, yeah. There, there was, I don't know if you remember, the artist Emma Sukowitz. This the woman with the mattress? Carried her mattress. Yeah, I yeah. knew where you were going. That was, I mean, that was national huge news. That just like, I mean, I got chills to think that like here this woman is showing her trauma to the world and they are helping her carry it. And it was just like a a moment for me where I, I realized like this also happened to me. It is a big deal. It's not just some rape light shit from the nineties. It really affected me and it's not cool. And on top of that, you know, I, this, this guy abused me when I was younger. So I think I, I think I finally, I came out of denial because there was a cultural conversation around it. And because frankly, I was very anxious and I, and it, they, it came up in therapy. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, sleep, all that stuff, like locking doors. Like I have been with people that have experienced that stuff and like yeah. it is every part of their lives. Like yeah. even unconsciously, I dated a woman who literally went around the house every night and locked, like checked the door locked. Oh and yeah. I, it, if I, I did I tactically if, clear the apartment. <laughs> yeah. And if I, like, if I would do, if I would lock the door that it wasn't, she had to physically see that all the doors were locked. And, yeah. You know, I was like, if you've lived around somebody that has had that, you're like, that shit is, there's not a moment, even if you don't feel like you're feeling it, that you're not feeling it. Yes, it definitely, it, there was one moment I remember being in an elevator going up to my 
fashion company that was all women. And there were four guys from a tech company in there. And the, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I thought, well, that's weird. You know, these guys aren't threatening. And I realized that it, that was PTSD. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's when the bad decisions start getting made. Yeah. The trauma comes up and I mean, we won't have to delve into them, but like for me, I always told folks like that, you know, I would go looking for a fight or mm -hmm. I would go drinking or I would go try to hook up like anything to make that feeling yep. go away. Yes. And I, it would, it's just, it's, it's, you become not feral. Yeah, no, it's true. Cause it's just like shut this thing down, whether it's medication, drinking. Yeah. Sex. Yeah. I mean, it's many ways. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, uh, it's why it's so important, I think, to talk about these kinds of things and also to hear like guys talking about this stuff. Cause I, you know, we don't talk about that stuff. There's not, there's not a cultural dialogue around that kind of stuff, Yeah, but like, I, I can't remember what the woman's name was, but the woman who, the, the artist with the mattress, that's sort of the moment that I remember date rape being changed from like rape light into like, we need to have a fucking discussion about yeah, because it's, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to say more traumatizing, but it's traumatizing in a different way because it's confusing. Yeah. I think in the same way that maybe childhood sexual abuse might be that like this person you trusted took advantage of you and maybe you've had, you're confused about, you know, there's a self blame of I put off some, sure. you know, vibes that I was into this and and they may not even know they've done it, right? Like that. So like, how do you ever trust anybody? Yeah. I think it's an insidious thing that needs to be corrected at a cultural level. Yeah. Because the, you know, brutal, the brutality of rape that occurs in other, in some other cultures is like, it's out there. Everyone sees it and knows it, but this yeah. is more of a, I think an ingrained thing that has to do with yes, masculinity and, and just a more open dialogue about it. Yeah. I mean, my life, I've told people, my life is demonstrably better since I've gone into therapy. And, you know, I don't think I was a bad guy, but nobody thinks they're a bad guy. Like that's, nobody thinks that they are, right? Yeah. But I know that my ability to deal with emotions and my ability to deal with other people's emotions and my ability to be empathetic exists in a way that didn't before because you know i had gone my whole life just pushing that shit down pushing my pain and trauma down yeah um, and it wasn't like you know when the guys get together we don't talk about I, my best friend and i i always tell folks like we talk now yeah but we would go a year without speaking to each other because why you know my mom would something would happen she'd be like how's you know how's your you know how's austin I'm mm -hmm. like well i'm not going to call him and ask because if he's having a good day i don't want to bring up bad stuff <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Which, that, which now I'm like, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so you start therapy. That's inflection point two. And this is, this is when you begin to unpack. This is when I unpack and I begin to write about it. Really? So you're writing about it while you're in therapy. Well, so I, I actually didn't start like writing, writing professionally until I was, until around the same time. And honestly, I started with humor writing. So I wrote humor essays. I wrote for sites like Reductress. I, I mean, I think there's a darkness to people who are funny, right? And uh, actually, there's a hundred percent darkness to them. 
I love dark humor. It's like, I, I mean, it's how I, how I personally coped with my, my life, but, um, so that was how I started writing. And then when the stuff came up in therapy, I thought, well, I'm going to write this. And I wrote it and I showed it to a close friend. And she said that I think maybe you should reconsider your tack as a writer um, because this felt more natural and it actually allowed me to feel like my whole self, you know, like feel so all move away from humor and, and into more personal, yeah, personal writing that could also be, you know, kind of twisted and funny, but, <laughs> but I was accessing something that I hadn't been before. Yeah. It's the premise of the show that I put together so many years ago is that I, we write because we're trying to figure something out. It's why I do this interview because I, and I don't read people's books until after I've talked to them because I'm mm -hmm. like, I don't care whether I like the book or not. I'm reading it because I want to know what you're trying to do mm -hmm. because every writer's trying to work something out. And a lot of times they don't know it. Yep. And then when you figure out what you're trying to work out, that's when your career comes together. Yeah. <laughs> right? And you know, I had a, a friend that used to say sarcasm and humor is, is, is mean, is the language of mean because mm. it is, it is always at the expense of somebody. Mm. And so I've always thought about that as I write, when I write funny stuff, I have to be, pull myself back and go, uh, am I being mean or am I, you know, observationally, yes, maybe it's fine. Right. But that, yeah. There's a, that's the anger. I think the anger of humor is that there is an object to which this thing is written about. Interesting. I, that makes sense to me. I think I'm more of a self-depreciating humorist and, and that's probably turning the anger inward, which is shame. <laughs> yeah. So, that's, that, yeah, that's that thing that you tried to work out in therapy, right? Like yeah. the ugly. Exactly. Um, and if you control it, then you control how people see it. Exactly. Right. In a way that your body wasn't yours. But the truth is you can't control it. You have to, um, you have to look at it. You have to own it. You have to reclaim it so yeah. that it doesn't own you. Yeah. Alison Wood, who wrote Being Lolita, um, said, because I don't believe writing's cathartic. Like, I just yeah. don't, it's not cathartic. It's not, doesn't solve. And she was like, yeah, no, writing this book didn't fix anything. It just allowed yeah. me to tell my story. This wasn't somebody else telling my story anymore. This was me telling it. And that's the only thing that writing this gave me. Yeah, I, I, Exactly. I, I do feel like I, the writing process itself is traumatizing. I mean, I it's fucking awful. Yeah. Tired afterwards. I would need a nap after yeah. writing like two paragraphs. But And digging uh, into all of those feelings is you're not reliving it, but you're kind of reliving it. You're kind of reliving it when you write the scenes and stuff. Yeah. I, I do think, though, that there is something to writing being thinking and thinking being processing. And so in a way you are kind of, you're not processing your trauma in the way that you would be in therapy, but you're processing your thoughts about it and you're becoming clearer about your story or at least a version of your story that you needed to be able to see. Yeah. And that allows you then to go into therapy and say, I now understand this in a way I can talk about it. Yeah. And you can use the words that you need to use and not, not use them. Yeah, sometimes I just literally wanted to email my therapist an essay before therapy and be like, let's talk about this today, but I already wrote down all my feelings. So you can just read it in advance. We could just get ahead to start. But <laughs> If it makes you feel any better, I have had to keep myself from sending long things that I've written to my therapist too. For exactly the same reason, I'm like, this is what we're going to cover. Yeah. So you can start working on some of the processing tools I need to do when I get there. That'd be great because it's been on my mind. Uh, 
God, poor it is. That's the thing about that's why I think that writers are always trying to work something out because we're taking a we're taking something that doesn't that's not concrete and words make it concrete and to make it concrete and to speak concrete like you said before makes it real. Yep. If it's an idea, it's not real. Yeah. Um, and people who aren't writers don't understand how fucking scary that is. A memory. Yeah. Is, is memory real? I mean, there are all kinds of theories in astrophysics that say there is no past, present, and future. They're not different. And yet, is it, I don't know, is anything real? It's, you know, when I taught jur- magazine journalism, I used to tell students, if the, the, the way to be sure that you don't know what happened is an eyewitness account. Yeah. And there's all the science behind why that is because of the way in which you stop, your senses stop working. But if you go ask a cop, they'll tell you, yeah, well, what people say is oftentimes not even close to what happened. Yeah. And so then you put that into your memory and you're like, uh, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can change. I think, you know, memory is malleable. hundred percent. You know, the neurons, there's neuroplasticity there. But I think there's a certain degree of self-archive. Like you can you can check things, the documentation. You can yeah. There's also an emotional truth, right? Like if I get if I get the location of a lamp in a room wrong, fine. Right. But I know that some something happened there that was important to me, or I wouldn't remember it. Yeah, I keep three journals. I keep a sort of a daily log where every day I'm just like, this is sort of what happened today. Um, and I write letters to people that I never send. So when things trigger me or when I feel that I need to be heard, but like it's my shit and I really don't need to be heard because once I put it, once I say it, it's actually better. So I have this book where I just write letters to people that I never send. And I have found that has helped me emotionally not carry that stuff mm-hmm. around. And when I see it, I'm like, that's crazy. Like if yeah. I had said that to a person, yeah. they'd have been hurt and thought, and they'd have been right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it, it takes it out of you and then it's not as scary. Yeah, and when it happens, I'm now recognizing it because I'm, I'm actively sort of responding to it. And my therapist was like, that's the only way you're gonna be a normal person is if you, you, I have to write things down and pay attention to them and revisit them. Because like you said, with memory, Trauma makes me not, yeah. makes all that stuff in my head not work right. It's true. It, it, it can be a little confusing. Yeah. It's so weird. It's so weird to be an adult and have that shit happening. And you're like, well, that's not what I thought adulthood was going to be. Yep. I mean, <laughs> this is definitely not what I thought. I'm going to be in charge of my own life. I didn't think, okay, I'm going to be working all day. Then I'm going to go to therapy. Then I'm going to squeeze in a Pilates class. And I'm right. gonna be so exhausted. I just eat over the sink. Yeah. Out of the hummus container. Like, it's not, not what I had planned, but hey, I, I'm not mad. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah. It, again, I just wish as a kid they'd be like, look, you're going to see some shit on TV. But that's not what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's nothing about Bill show up. That water you drank, that cost $1.75 every time you drink that out of the tap. Yep. <laughs> so you, you write the book, and you'd never written, like, did you just do it on your own, or did you, like, join a program, or did you do classes? I did some classes because I'd never studied writing. I, um, I, I went to workshops. I, I, I did a first draft of the book kind of while I was working through the feelings. And then I, I looked at it again to sort of add depth and re-clarify and have that moment of, oh, that shit's crazy. You gotta, that's not you know, the craft part of turning a, 
turning what happened into yeah. something else that is interesting for a reader and or that is art or however you want to look at it. Yeah. But, it's um, weird, isn't it? It's weird to mine a thing that actually happened and then be like, well, structurally, this does not make sense. I, yeah, yes. That's actually the part I like the best, though, is is p- putting it together and figuring out what is the way into this story and how yeah. can I frame this in a way that is unusual or will be surprising. Yeah. But um, I did, I went to a couple of workshops. I went to the Tin House workshop and I took my whole manuscript there. And I was lucky that Elena Passarello was my mentor. And she like, that woman has a brain like no other. She just told, basically helped me quote unquote fix it in the sense that at the time it felt like a weird sort of unsuccessful memoir And she really was like, this is an essay collect. This is a memoir in essays. And she gave me some like craft tips on how to make that work because the pieces sort of have to fit together. And, you know, it's nonlinear. It has to add up to more than the sum of its parts, which is not always easy to do. The one thing that I didn't know is that a bunch of essays does not a collection make, you know, it has to really be put together in a way that is not, not easy. So I, and it's not easy to write a memoir either. Um, a notebook is easy. There but, you go. Um, <laughs> bingo. Yeah. It was not doing what I needed it to do, but I was able to, I'd spend another year on it and get it to, I think, where it needed to be. And that's, it is such a profound thing when you realize a memoir and essays, because it it, it can, how many essays is it? Like seven or eight? Um, 13. Oh man, so you're a lot. So you're covering a lot of, a lot of ground in that. It's shortish though. I mean, I was ruthless with um, keeping <laughs> it specific to... Sir, uh, just uh, having one sort of arc. I mean, I yeah. think that's the hard part of a memoir and essays as opposed to an essay collection, which can be thematic, is that the memoir and essays has like a narr- has an overarching subtle narrative arc. Yeah. So that has to work. So there had to be enough pieces to make that work. Yeah. But I also didn't want to overkill it because it, it felt, I like short books too, honestly. So yeah. it, they're, they're shorter essays. But I just, even with 13, I mean, you're covering a lot of topics. You're covering a lot of emo- like things because they're each about a different thing, even though they're about the same thing. Yes, they're circling. It's like the prism idea of yeah. you're looking at the same thing through different, looking at yourself basically through different. Rashomon. So we, that's what we're in. We're, we're seeing the, the lenses. It's, it's interesting because as I'm outlining this new essay stuff that I'm doing, and I'm assuming that you did something similar, like I'll tell a story in the first essay and I'm like, okay, that's going to get unpacked so that by the time you get to the fifth essay, you're like, oh shit, this is a different thing than what I thought it was. Yeah. That's really hard to do. <laughs> I didn't do that at all. I just wrote that. I wrote the most powerful things and then figured out, then cut a bunch of doom, figured out which ones went together. Wow. There were, there was going through the manuscript at the end. I noticed some repetition. Yeah. I mean, there has to be right. Just because, um, things mean, like we said, things mean different things when they happen when time passes. Yes. And that, (laughs) that is part of the reason that I chose this structure that I, uh, the way I understood this at this time, 20 years later, I see how it's affected me in different ways. So I need to revisit the event. And really, the story for the reader is not 
the story of Sarah's life, but how I understood these fragments yes. over time, because that's how, that's how a person grows and that's relatable. Yeah. Well, and that's what I mean by like, it said so the events, like you may not be retelling the events, but like they're learning more about those events because they yeah. change over time and there's nothing that is static yep. except for bad stuff. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, yes, the, the the memories that stick. Yeah, the bad stuff is static, but everything else should there should be a growth. It's I I am always amazed when people are able to. Um, I never say people are brave for writing because nobody writes because they're brave. You write because you have to, right? Like if you're a writer, you're like, there's literally no bravery in it because all you do is try not to write it for as long as you can. Also, the truth is, I'm terrified while I'm doing it. So yeah, like, that's what I mean. Like it's not like I just think it's fun. like people who aren't writers when they're like, oh my god, you're so brave, and like writers are like, <laughs> they have no choice. They have yeah. no choice but to put yeah. that thing down. But it is still the craft of doing that, of both taking things that were traumatic and real and then turning them into a story that is sort of beyond you is a fucking hard thing to do and it's an achievement to do uh and that's the stuff that i'm always like man people that can do that i'm always impressed with because it's such a it's it's both a hard thing um and a necessary thing right like because we have to tell these stories yeah i always think it's that it's so specific and, and, and personal that it becomes universal because you're saying something I haven't heard said before, or at least not in that way, or I haven't yep. thought of, as opposed to some, some essay collections and writing in general, which sort of illuminates larger things in society. Those are interesting too. It's just doing something different. Yeah. And for me, I like the stuff that, I mean, I always used to tell whenever I work with young writers, I'm like, if you want to tell a, if you want to tell a human story, tell one very tiny specific thing that happened somewhere. Because Mm -hmm. if I tell you the day, if I said I had to put my cat down, that'll make you sad. But if I tell you the moment that the cat put her paws on my face, the way she used to, and I don't, I won't tell the rest of the story because I'll start crying, (laughs) but they're always like, Oh my God, that. And I'm like, yeah, that's the difference between trying to tell everything and saying, I'm going to give you a moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's, that's hard and impressive. And, uh, it's even doubly so that you didn't study writing that you started it later on in your life. And then it was just like, that was the thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, makes it all the more amazing. Like, you know that, right? I get, I mean, I, I think it was kind of like, it was really built up in there for all those for 30 <laughs> years. And so it was just like, pew, pew, pew when it came out. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I'll have that um, with my second book, but We'll see. Yeah, it's always the joke. Whenever somebody, whenever they write their first book, I'm like, they're like, it took me five years. I'm like, no, it took you your whole life. Yep. And then what you have to do is figure out how to do that in 18 months. (laughs) Good luck with that. Are you working on something new? I am kicking around a novel idea, which I have actually been accidentally researching for the past two years. So (laughs) So you're um, going fiction. You're like, you're doing the, you're doing the, the Lord's work. I've I've written some short stories. I don't know really how to write fiction, so we'll we'll see. Yeah, but you didn't know how to write a, a memoir and essays either, and that worked out. It, I, yeah, I think you can study enough of, of other people's work. Yeah, and books and the way that other writers get around things and probably figure it out. And are you gonna? Do you think you'll go back and take some classes or workshops? I'm good. I think. At some point, I would need someone to look at my work, but I don't know if I should take a fiction class or wait for... I think I'm going to see how far I can get on my own. Yeah. And then maybe try to do a workshop. 
That feels just in the short time I've known you, that feels very much like a you thing. Yes, it is a very new <laughs> thing. Just like play, playing right half back. Yeah. Keeping my keeping my shame in a little box. <laughs> like, you know me. <laughs> yeah, like I could get help, but I'm gonna go ahead and see about this on my own and then we'll see if I need some help later. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'm just gonna I'm going to sit with it for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I hope you feel seen in this interview because I feel like, you know. I we... kind of do. I feel a little too seen if you must know. <laughs> well, that's the, yeah, I won't tell anybody about it. So. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, this has been lovely. It's been so great talking to you. Um, I cannot wait to read the book. Um, Yay. Yeah, and, and it was just lovely having you on the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a delight to talk to you, and I will look forward to hitting up some of your happy hours. Well, folks, that was Sarah Casbeer, whose book, A Woman, A Plan, An Outline of a Man, came out in October. She's lovely. We had such a good time. We have been laughing since we did that interview a few months back, because she is one of those guests that felt like we have been friends forever. It was just the best conversation. It has continued after. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we love putting that together. I hope you felt what we felt having that conversation. Before we get out of here, just a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors that I talked about at the top of the show. Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes, they're out every Monday and Thursday. Remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.